0: Content discussed on this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so if you feel like today you can't quite handle it, that's totally fine. You can press pause and come back another day. Remember, we're always going to be here. And if you need immediate help, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Welcome everybody to If You Don't Mind. I am your host, Madeline Charrington. This is episode three. Uh, How amazing is that? I'm so stoked that we've got this far. Um, You know what, guys, as I record this introduction, I've just got over the worst case of the flu. It absolutely wrecked me, wrecked me. Um, I am tired and <laughs> fatigued and feel like I've run a marathon, but I'm here and I'm doing this and I'm making sure this episode gets out on time because it's very important to me. <laughs> Look, this week we have a great episode. I interviewed um, a lovely lady by the name of Emily. Uh, she is just so articulate and intelligent, it's almost intimidating. When I was speaking to her, I remember thinking, oh my God, I'm not going to have to edit this at all because um, she she just keeps going and she's so well-spoken. Amazing. We actually had a really interesting discussion about her childhood and how a very, very nasty divorce actually impacted on her mental health long-term. So it was very interesting to see how a family breakdown can have all these negative effects going forward. Uh, we also talked a lot about her struggles with anxiety and how she's working through them. So, a very, very, very candid chat from Emily. And I think you will all really enjoy it. I think a lot of people will um, really, it will really resonate with people, especially those who've come from families that have divorced or gone through quite. A nasty divorce process. Uh, two things you just need to be aware of. There is discussion of suicide. So if that's something you're not ready to hear about today, that's fine. You can come back when you're ready. Second of all, this is frustrating to me, but <laughs> right at the end, there's like a few minutes of the audio where there's like this tick, this ticking and crackling noise. Guys, I can't figure out what, ha- what happened <laughs> and why it did that. But because I'm a perfectionist and riddled with self doubt, I was like, you know what? No, it's staying in there. It's going in there. So that's fine. Still in there. Please listen to the last few minutes because I promise you they're worth it. I think that's all, guys. So sit back, relax, and let's listen to an amazing interview with Emily. <laughs> Obviously, like, I'll delete all this, like, backroom noise, but I'm just going to make sure it's fine. Yeah, cool. Um, hey, Emily. Hello, Maddie. <laughs> How are you going today? Pretty good. Yeah? yeah. How did you uh, find the journey here?
1: Pretty easy, actually. Yeah. Um, just hopped on the train, got the direct one, <laughs> followed G Maps all the way here.
0: Yeah. Oh, I'm glad. I think it's quite, like, interesting when people, and I tell people where this secret location is. <laughs> It's definitely secret.
1: It's like, very I had to secret. look it up,
0: up the images on Google. Yeah.
1: And it had images of the caravan. So then was <laughs> all the caravan.
0: I was like, "Oh, I'm meeting her at a caravan." Um, Emily, I think what I wanted to start with today was the fact that you were just telling me before we started recording that you actually just took some medication <laughs> for your nerves. What's that about? Why
1: why do you take that? Yeah, well, basically when you have anxiety, oftentimes the physical symptoms can overcome Um, and overtake you so even if like my mind it it always starts with my mind it's like okay I'm going to I'm going doing a podcast I was already worrying about this about a week ago you know, just the thought of being recorded, um, you know, sounding silly or it's nothing to do with talking about the personal aspect of anything, because I'm happy to talk about mental illness, things like that. I'll talk about it with anyone conversationally. But I think it's just, it's, I, ha- I definitely have an issue with performance anxiety in particular. So anything I have to do at work or that's going to be recorded or filmed. Um, so just pop to propranolol. Um, so basically just slows your heart rate down and gives you a chance to kind of reset and almost I just feel like it makes me me how I'm meant to be without all the I still have the crazy thoughts but it's not it's not manifesting in a physical sense where I can't control it anymore because once your breathing takes over and your heart rate and like my hands are sweaty anyway but like once all that overtakes and then you're like oh no I look nervous I, I can't deal with it anymore that's you know panic attack territory Um, So it just takes that away. And it's a new thing for me, actually. I've only had them for a couple of months or so, yeah, two or three months. And honestly, life-changing.
0: Really? Yeah. So how did you get to that realisation that um, anxiety medication was something that you needed? Um,
1: It was – it's kind of a journey to discovering that I was, in fact, anxious. Yes. Which um, was a new realisation for me. Um, So I guess – Having identified that, I soon started to realise all the areas of my life where anxiety kind of permeates. And yes, it's it's normal to get nervous about speaking in public and things like that. But with me, it's like a whole new level. And then I cannot be objective about my performance. After it, it's like absolutely, as my psychiatrist said, it's like everything with me is either perfect or a catastrophe. So if it wasn't perfect, which is obviously... You know, when you're a perfectionist, it's very hard to get things the way you want them to be, and then you're very self-critical and all those things. So if it's not perfect, it's a catastrophe, and I tend to catastrophize everything. So you know, if I do a performance which may have been objectively good, which I'm trying to learn now by looking at looking at it, trying to look at it, you know, away from myself, I guess. um, You know, I would just look on everything that I did as a disaster, and I I noticed particularly starting my new job a few months ago, where I was doing a lot more of, of this kind of stuff, leading a team, talking in public, you know, it's almost becoming a routine. And it was really impacting my confidence, my performance. And honestly, like, I'm just going to be sabotaging myself at work. So work's a a place where I realise it the most. But it's not just performing, um, I guess, performance anxiety or being on stage or anything, you know, with all eyes on you. It's just other areas of life where you can work yourself up so much that you can't bring yourself back down. Yeah. Anxiety hole. Yes. Where no one can take you out of it. Yes. So I guess having a little help, some emergency
0: pills in a way was definitely, definitely useful. Do you think also like criticism is something that you that you struggle with? Because I know for me, if I think that there's going to be like negative feedback, that really stresses me out that I want to, I want people to think I'm just doing a fantastic job all the time.
1: Absolutely. Um, I don't know if I, it's not so much feedback in the sense that if someone were to give me feedback, I am convinced that I know what people are thinking. So, and because I'm my own worst critic and I'm horrible to myself, I'm constantly telling myself I'm doing a shit job or I'm not good enough at work. Um, Everything I do is pretty much shit. Um, You know, therefore I think other people think the same thing. Because if I think these things about myself and I know what I'm doing and blah, 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 you know, it's very hard to separate yourself from that mindset and that brain and, you know, I may be more aware of it and in tune with it now, you know, over the last few months where I've kind of worked out this whole anxiety thing. Um, the fact is I've been like this my, like well since I was a little kid. So I'm mm-hmm. so used to my brain being this way and it's really hard to separate yourself from that. If I do a presentation, I have to try and objectively get people's feedback and gather all the data points. And not, I don't necessarily want to seek the feedback because I'm scared. I still think people are going to say it was shit or whatever, and I don't want to ask. I don't want to know. But people, you, you notice, people come up to you and they're like, that presentation was fantastic. And you know, I might say, oh, they're just saying it, they're just saying it, whatever. But then you get another data point, another data point, and someone pulls out parts of your presentation that they liked. And then, you know, my boss will bring it up in front of everyone. And so I'm like, that's a good data point. That's a good data point. So maybe I, my brain is lying to me. So I was really proactively trying to recognize when I'm catastrophizing and being
0: too harsh on myself. Yes. I think the thing with anxiety is it's not rational. There's, there's no rationality when it comes to it. You can be the most logical person, but anxiety can flip anything on its head. Absolutely. I'm pretty good at helping other people out with their problems. If if someone's
1: being irrational, you know, I'm very, like, I'm probably a go-to person for advice for people. I can be really logical, um, see a situation quite clearly, but, yeah, as soon as, like, it it involves
0: me, um, yeah, it's a complete disaster. (laughs) I'm sure it's not a complete disaster, but I understand what you mean. It just, the catastrophizing is, is such... It's such a hallmark of anxiety, and I think when it becomes, it when it impacts on your like your work, it's so it's so I don't know I don't know the word, right word, but it can be quite debilitating because you just yeah. feel like. You just can't quite get to a point where you feel confident in what you're doing. Yeah, there's always something, and that's what my psychiatrist says. He mm. says anxiety always has to focus
1: on something. Yes. So you get past one thing, and for me it's like, okay, this presentation next week or this podcast next week or, you know, and, um, you know, once you get past that, I'm like, I'll be fine then. I've just yes. got to get through that, and I wreck myself. I don't sleep. I don't, you know, I'm all over the place. I'm stressing. I can't put my laptop down because I have to focus 24-7 Um, and I'm absolutely exhausted and debilitated, but then it's straight on to the next thing. Yes. Never get a break. And I often find myself, you know, thinking about how exhausted I am. I'm just so, sometimes I just want to be out of my brain. I don't know what it's like for, you know, my boyfriend, for instance, who, um, doesn't you know, very hard for him to understand anxiety. He'll often say to me, you know, it's completely irrational. I know it's irrational, but it's not irrational to me. You know, it's, in my head, it's all very real.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the thing when explaining anxiety to people is you're aware of how, I mean, I hate using the word, but you're aware of how crazy you're sounding mm. when you're explaining it, but it's just this compulsion. Mm-hmm. And if you could stop it, you would. Like, obviously, you have, we haven't got to a point where mm. we can, like, just turn it off and on. But it's so – it can be very, I think, exhausting explaining it to people because they just don't get it. If they haven't experienced it, you will not get it.
1: Yeah, and I think that's something I'm navigating now in my relationship is like how do we yeah how do we find that balance and you know my boyfriend's having to go through a massive education and like trying to understand me and how best to handle it you know he's he's tried being overly comforting and almost enabling and then you know that's exhausting for him and then other times the tough love approach which is just horrible oh my god it doesn't work so does not work guys exactly (laughs) guys don't do it it causes so many fights um so we're really trying to navigate that together like how do we deal with my anxiety but Mm -hmm. at the same time i I need to learn and I need to not you know when you have a significant other you tend to go to them like I'll do a presentation and call Andy straight away I'm like I stuffed up whatever and you know he wasn't there but I want him what did my psychiatrist call it um reassurance seeking
0: oh so it, has it has a name so has a name okay. so I, this is all very fresh I'm. this is through. very interesting to me so, go on
1: yeah. So my boyfriend and I had a fight the last presentation at work I did. He was over in Atlanta. I called him straight away. I was like, it was a disaster. I stuffed up. I, you know, of course, after I did my presentation, went straight back to my laptop and looked at all the things I missed out. He, of course, Classic. because I want to make myself look, yeah, feel worse. So, um, yeah, so I called him. I'm obviously subconsciously just wanting comfort, but... At the same time, nothing he says can reassure me because I know I did a shit job, apparently. Turns out I didn't. But, yeah, we ended up just having a fight because he was just obviously over the other side of the world, different time zone, and was like, oh, look, just give up. Like, if it's this hard, why don't you just find a new job? And just really tried, like, just did a 180 and just tried this complete different approach. And that just sent me spiralling. Yeah, definitely not the best, but then I spoke to my psychiatrist about it, who was telling me, well, that's typical reassurance seeking. You go to someone and you want the comfort, but you're not going to accept it. So, you can see how frustrating that would be for the other person, because they yes. know they've been through this many times before. You know, he comforts me, tells me it's okay, No, you know, he tells me, knows I didn't do a bad performance, but I reject that, reject that, reject that. like, no, it, this time is different. It was bad. So... Reassurance seeking is something I'm working on at the moment. That's my latest project.
0: It just never – I mean, it makes sense because I do that all the time. Yeah. Anytime I have any kind of like confrontation issue or I feel like I've fucked up somehow, like I literally call my partner straight away. It's like my go-to. And it's like it gets to a point where it's very exhausting for them and you don't want to be that person, that girlfriend, who's like constantly Mm. calling and crying and But it kind of comes with the the territory of being anxious. Yeah, and if
1: you didn't have
0: him, you'd have someone else. Oh,
1: yeah, I'd call my mum or my dad. I would call my mum. Yeah. I used to do that with my mum. It just transfers Mm. to the the main person in your life. And I Mm. realise I've done this with a lot of people in life as well.
0: No, yeah. If it's not your partner, it's your friend or a parent. Mm. And it's it's hard. Like I find I can never evenly distribute it. Like it's only ever like the one person because when you get comfortable – that one person, you're like, cool, you're my go-to. Mm. I'm not going to call anyone else. And you don't have to hide it as well. No. Like, I can be
1: my full irrational anxiety. Oh, you can
0: be your batshit crazy person. Yeah, literally
1: crazy. And I just go for it. Like, my anxiety's out of control and I, like, hide it from everyone else. Oh, I know. I admit, oh, I'm a bit anxious, you know, at work, but... I'm feeling a little bit stressed. Yeah, <laughs> you know, just normal kind of little
0: bit of nerves. <laughs> yeah. Not really. I think also, like... <laughs> just it reminds me of this story. I I remember I had this huge fight with my partner because he was like, "Okay, so you don't want me to tell you it's okay, and you also don't want me to give you any constructive like feedback or ways to fix it. Like what do you want me to do?" And I was like, "I literally just need you to tell me that you love me and that I'm not crazy." And listen to me every time I call you. And he's like, that is just not sustainable. And I was like, well, I don't have any other solution at this That's point. That's funny. It's exactly what I said. I no literally solution. had the
1: same <laughs> conversation with my boyfriend where he's
0: like, well, what do I
1: do? You yeah. know, I don't want to enable you. And mm. I obviously can't be too mean. And I'm like, just be nice. Like, just be nice to me. Just be there when I call and tell me it's okay. Mm. But I need to be able to tell myself it's okay. For I sure, shouldn't rely on someone else to be able to tell me that.
0: No, I know it's so hard as well. And I think when you've kind of, you're so, you're so set in your ways. Like anxiety is something that doesn't, for most people, just happen overnight. It is this pattern that you've learnt and that you've been, you know, entrenched in for so long. Like I don't know about how it how it is for you, but I've been suffering with anxiety since I was like ten, mm. maybe younger. And so it's literally how you think. It's it's part of who you are. Mm. There is you and there's your anxiety. Like, I think at one point I had a name for it and I was like, maybe this is counterintuitive. Mm. So I stopped naming it. Making it real. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, oh, I think I was calling her like Sandra and I'd be like, oh, an fucking Sandra is yeah. really on my butt today. Ugh. But that was probably not the best idea. <laughs> I don't know. I don't yeah, know why I did it. That. An yeah, strange yeah, stuff. Yeah,
1: I'm the same. Like, um, so my, I'm a little bit different in that. While I was diagnosed with depression, um, you know, about ten years ago, when I was eighteen or nineteen. Uh, I actually technically was also diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, but it was more at that point I had a lot of social anxiety because I got pretty depressed, didn't know what it was for a long time and had retreated from society, quit uni, things like that. So by that point, Mm. I was quite scared to go outside. Yeah, yeah go back out and socialise, you know, very self-conscious, that kind of thing. So I never really took the anxiety diagnosis seriously. And once I, you know, did some psychology and got back out and, you know, started socialising again, that kind of went away. But I never picked up on this actual beast of anxiety that now that I – so I've only recently technically been diagnosed with it again, um, but actually – It wasn't – I actually took it to my psychiatrist because my boyfriend, when we were first started dating, Mm. um, he actually alerted alerted me to it. So we just happened to be having a conversation one day and he was like, oh, so yeah, because you know how you're so anxious. And I was like, um, excuse me? What do you mean? Yeah, I was like, (laughs) what are you talking about? I'm like, I might be a little bit highly strung from time to time and a bit stressed. And we used to work together. So he saw me, you know, often at my – like higher stress levels um, and he was like "Ah, uh, hold on a second you don't know you're anxious and I'm like what do you mean and I'm you the actually- most was chill like, this person is so offensive like <laughs> I'm so chill I literally said that I'm like I'm so chill and in many ways I am but yeah and he was like oh my god this is literally like the biggest news story of the year you do not know you're anxious he's like I've known from the day I met you that you were anxious and I was just like all of a sudden this world came crashing down and I was like oh my god maybe I'm anxious and then you know you you know you become aware of something it's like you've woken up and and then we would we were just kind of working it out together like he was like this is anxiety this is anxiety all <laughs> these thought thought patterns and processes and rituals i had and little things about even just not liking change and not wanting to stay at his house because it was like i'm not in, you know i'm not my comfortable area Um, all these little things. And so I kind of took that to my psychiatrist and he was like, classic anxiety. (laughs) I remember I asked him once, I was like, so after a few sessions, I was like, so do you think I'm an anxious person? He was like, yes. And I was like, and then he was like, oh, um, well, you know, there's a spectrum. So you're probably closer to the more extreme side of things. I was like, yeah, way to tone it down, buddy. (laughs) So that's how I discovered anxiety. But we've done a lot of reflecting together now and kind of gone through my childhood and and I realize a lot of these patterns of um, thought patterns and behavior patterns, anxiety has been like pretty much um, entrenched since I was young. Okay. But and so just what- Just becoming aware of it, I just always thought it was normal.
0: Yeah, no. And what happened, can I ask what happened when you were young that you think kind of started this whole anxiety journey?
1: Yeah. So my parents got divorced, which is not uncommon. Hmm. Um. So- they separated when I was eight, but the problem was we went through the court, so they couldn't agree on anything. Lawyers get involved, and then before you know it, it's extremely conflict-heavy, adversarial, all of the above. And so we ended up going through the family court for a couple of years, um, which I probably didn't quite realize the extent of or how significant that was at the time. But at the same time, you know, the family court, I'm pretty passionate about this topic because I don't think it's a place for kids. Um because, you know, parents, they're going through a divorce. There's obviously a lot of emotions and the court kind of environment with lawyers and, you know, everything being about fighting and divvying up assets and kids and things like that. Um, you know, it just encourages conflict and it encourages people to exploit the system. And so I was actually coached a lot to kind of hate my dad. Really? Yeah, because, Gosh, okay. um, yeah, and I, you know, I look back now and um, I've dealt a lot. Uh, with this in recent years in therapy. But, um, you know, I essentially for about eight years thought my dad was a pretty evil person, uh, that he was, you know, abusive, that he did all these things. And I was almost like my mum's puppet, I guess, and um, being the eldest of three as well. So um, when it came to the court, you know, we had to talk to psychologists and talk about how, where we wanted to stay. And I would, you know, repeat all the things that I was told to say about I'm scared to go to my dad's house, you know, he leaves us alone, Um, you know, all the bad things that he does. Um, So when I became aware when I was a bit older, around 16, 17, when I kind of had my, I guess, adult, more adult perspective, and I saw my dad as, you know, for who he was as an, I guess, as another human, I kind of thought, oh, it's so funny, because all the things that I know about him just don't seem to match up. He doesn't seem like an aggressive, abusive guy or that, you know, he's got even a mean bone in his body. He really shies away from conflict. He's, you know, the last person to start a fight um, he likes to communicate, like just all these things were just the complete opposite. And I started, it started to kind of all crumble down that, oh my God, you know, maybe I was a little bit lied to. And so, um, the problem is when, you know, I was very scared because, you know, my mum had told me all these bad things about my dad and about going there and we were always in danger. And, you know, I feel like that's when my anxiety started because I was always, Alert. I was always on edge when we went to dad's about I felt responsible for my brother and sister, Mm. and you know, mum had kind of instilled the fear of God into me that, you know, we weren't safe when we went to dad's house because he was a bad father and he wasn't attentive. And, and so it's just like, I could never take my eyes off my brother and sister because I wasn't convinced they would be kidnapped or killed. um And, you know, I was my, just, I guess my mum's little spy and my mum's messenger and always wanting to make mum feel good. And, and, you know, she went through a hard time too. And, I don't blame her. I know she was just desperate and obviously didn't want to lose us. She went to extreme measures maybe, but, um, you know, she she did what she thought was right at the time. She just wanted to, you know, keep her children, I guess. Um, and she was really angry at my dad for leaving, which is fair enough. I don't agree with how she handled it, but, you know, I can't hold on to that forever. But it just, it occurs to me now, even problems I have with emotional eating, I have like, I've dealt a lot with weight fluctuation over the years, binge eating, that kind of thing, and then starving myself. And, you know, I look back now with my psychiatrist, we kind of connected the dots and looked at when I would go to my dad's, I would feel so lonely and scared and I just missed my mum so much and I would take comfort in food. Dad would, you know, mum's was a very strict, healthy household, but dad, the only cool thing about him at the time was that he would let us buy junk food and we could get whatever we wanted. And, um, so I would just sit there all night eating jam rolls and Tim Tams and cinnamon donuts. Wow. And it, and I never had a problem as a child with weight. Like mm. I was always a skinny kid. And so it, I guess I just, that was just comforting to me. And I remember, I remember being full and my brother and sister stopping and I would just keep going and that continued into adulthood. So you can see how these patterns of behavior just stick with you. Mm. And cause I was always like, why can't I just stop this emotional eating? Like I'll deal with all my issues and it'll be gone. But actually- as my psychiatrist says like your brain is wired in a certain way and it it's gone it's so used to you know the it's so used to the neurons or whatever they are so used to going through the same pathways for so long and so you need to completely create a new pathway and that takes so much time and diligence mm. and practice and so it's all about that willpower and you know if it comes to food it's just a constant um, you know, attempt that every time you get anxious or I get sad, like not to seek comfort in food, which is impossible, right? Because that's what oh, I always do done, but
0: yeah. also like it's just such an easy way out, it's like, easy
1: and it and honestly, it does bring my me comfort, yeah. Right, like I'm if I'm honestly a hundred percent truthful, like food makes me feel really good when I feel full, I feel safe. And I think that's what I did as a child. I was like, I'm full. I feel safe. That's why I associated. And that was a constant in my life.
0: Yeah. So I my mean, family was
1: breaking down, but I always had food. I didn't think sense. about it that way. But <laughs> now when I look back, it was, it was a constant.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, well, today I had a really shit day at work and I left work and I bought a block of chocolate mm. and I was like, I'm going to eat that on the train home. Yeah. Which is ridiculous because it has not, it's not going to solve anything.
1: But it feels so good. But it feels so good. But then the guilt sets
0: in and then I know. you make yourself and... Speaking of guilt, when you kind of realized that you had, I mean, it's obviously not your fault. This is what your mother asked you to do. Um, When you kind of felt like you deceived people in regards to how your dad actually was with you, did you feel a lot of guilt in respect
1: to that? Yeah. And I think that was probably a driving force in a lot of the depression um, I experienced after. So... I really, it's taken me a good three, four years since this is all, all these kind of, I went through a lot of therapy and these memories resurfaced and I can mm-hmm. really recall quite vividly the things I said about my dad. Mm. Um, and just the, like, it's the only thing that really gets me now, just the, how bad he must've felt because not only was he alone, you know, and, you know, his family was breaking down, but. His kids were against him and he knew it and we were horrible to him. And um, the guilt, yeah, the guilt is something that really kills me because you can't take it back. And at the same time, I know I was eight years old, but Mm. no, you know, and everyone says, oh, you're too young to know any better. But, you know, the fact is that... I was put in a pretty adult environment. I was told to go on the record and say that my dad was this and this, and and it wasn't true. But I was like, by the end of it, I believed in. And that resulted in me really having a pretty fractured relationship with my dad for about eight years. Like I, we saw him every second weekend. Yeah, that's the other thing. He got hardly any time with us, which I was convinced I was directly responsible for. Um, but, you know... Ironically, he's been a huge part of the healing process. So, you know, when all this started to come out in a lot of therapy, um, we would talk about it together and, um, you know, he <laughs> assures me I'm not a guilty party. He's like, you're only a child. What what is between me and your mum. It doesn't matter. He's like, I know how it was. And so we've gone through a lot of a big healing process, but even still, it just hurts. It just really hurts that I did that. And even like the language I'm using, I did that, you know, I was, I feel responsible. I feel like I knew, I feel like I did know better, but, um, it's just,
0: I guess, just a product of my environment in a way. So I guess carrying on from that, how is your relationship with your mother these days?
1: I was understandably really, really angry
0: when, um, I kind of worked it all
1: out and then proceeded to kind of go through therapy and everything. Um, I was like, yeah, really pissed off. I did attempt to bring it up with her once and my mum, it's a bit hard. I know it's a really sore area for her, the divorce and, um, I just think you know I came to the conclusion I was originally going to confront her about it and kind of talk about it, but I really don't think she would really understand and I think to be honest you know i I do try to sympathize with her and just think you know shoot, that was a really scary time, and she did what she she did what she could to protect herself and while in therapy, I have done a lot of you know confrontations with her, and um you know I've simulated um, this kind of discussion with her, I've made the decision that it's just not worth bringing up and passing on. Like the only thing it's going to do is really pass on this guilt to her. If I get the message across, so I'd rather just deal with it. And you know, my dad and I are okay now. We have a fantastic relationship. I'm closer to him than anyone. So to me, that's like the most important thing. I can't live in the past forever. So that, but that's also been a bit of a process to come to terms with that. Um, but like, I'm happy to say I have a really great relationship with both my parents now. It's just with mum. We just don't talk about that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I guess it's really important to kind of feel like your parents are in your corner and are present on your, um, on your mental health journey. I get, so how, how are your parents these days when it comes to talking about anxiety and depression? Have they been super supportive? What's, what's it been like for them?
1: Yeah. So it was a kind of a learning process for the whole family. I'm really lucky that I have a super supportive family in that respect. And it was when I originally got depressed, um, it was very new to everyone. Like I literally just started just crying every day, just feeling horrible, not wanting to go out. Mm Um, how old were you when this started like roughly uh 19 okay so I was in my second year of uni I was kind of feeling like I don't know where my life's going all of these like philosophical problems um and um it just i don't I don't actually know what it what it was that triggered it i just i found out later when I was diagnosed that um, you know, depression runs in my family. So I was officially diagnosed with like hereditary depression. Um, my grandma, maternal grandma had bipolar disorder. Um, so basically I just spent, you know, more and more days at home, isolated, in my bed, not doing anything. And my mum was terrified. She had no idea what was going on, but I couldn't do anything. I had to quit work. I had to quit uni. It just got so bad. And then one day, she just happened to be Googling some of my symptoms. I can't remember. I think I always had really cold hands and feet. So she was always like, Why are your hands and feet so cold? And you're always, whenever you cry, your hands and feet are so cold. And I think she Googled it and it came up with um, something about depression, and she just printed all this stuff off and was like, oh, my God, I think you've got depression. And I was like, I just never even considered that prospect, which is funny because it was 10 years ago, but now I feel like there's so much more awareness, maybe, I hope. I, maybe because I'm in it. I don't no, know. for sure. There's so much, like now, so much But I feel like now, yeah, I just feel like the fact that it was probably three months of me just wanting to kill myself before we knew anything of what to do. Um, and once you do kind of identify that, people come out of the woodwork. You find out, you know, all other people's stories. And um, but I was, yeah, really lucky to get in with um, uh, the founder of co-founder of the Black Dog Institute. Wow. Who is my psychiatrist, Professor wow. Gordon Parker?
0: Wow. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, I was really lucky. My stepdad did some charity work for Black Dog, so he was able to get me an appointment. <laughs> and um, yeah, pretty much, he was just like first session, we kind of went through my family history. I'd obviously uh, filled out some questionnaires and whatnot. And um, he basically was like, yep, 100% classic case, depression, anxiety, and put me on Lexapro. And that was pretty, pretty life-changing. But while it was good, you know, for a few months, I was like, I'm cured. All I needed was some pills. But it has been not been an easy ride since. <laughs> oh then. my
0: god! I wish it was that simple, no, buddy. It's really I really wish
1: not. it's really not. So over the years, I've only ever increased my medication. Um, they've, I've had multiple depressive episodes, breakdowns, one breakdown to rule them all. Um, what was that like? Um, so I guess I got to a point where. Over the years, and I do think a big part of it is the divorce, that I never fully dealt with it. So I think it had come up a lot. I'd done some psychology and counselling, things like that, as well as taking the pills. But the divorce would come up and I'm kind of like, no. Like, yes, it makes me sad if I think about it, but I'm not – it doesn't affect me. And I I think I was almost, like, suppressing it. Mm. And if I did think about it, I would be like, yeah, I'm really guilty, but, you know, whatever. I'll just – it's fine. It's in the past. But um, – and so – I really think that was a big factor, but I would just over the years just increase my medication because I'd have another, you know, bad phase and it would, you know, get all get horrible again. But then I'd kind of be okay for a while. But eventually, I think it was three years ago now, I had, um, I don't even know how to describe it. I became numb to everything. So I had had kind of breakdowns before where I was like, I'm going to kill myself, you know, take a bunch of my antidepressants, like, like just never want to wake up. Um, and really, really suicidal, really angry, really um impulsive, and that was always kind of my go to vibe, I guess, of breakdown. But this breakdown was different. It was like it was almost like I had just run out of energy. I was completely exhausted. I just became numb. I couldn't even cry. And I was like, I don't know what's wrong and all I knew was that I didn't want to increase my medication again because I had done it so many times. I'd say upwards of 20 times in 10 years. I'd just only ever increased. And so I was like, what for? What have I got to show for it? I've only ever increased my medication. I've also added another medication. But here I am again. Like I felt like I always ended up back at square one and I never made any progress. And, that's, and I just got to this point and I was just like, I can't function anymore. So I have to try something different and at that point i was like okay i'm going to try everything i'm going to try spiritual things i've always been quite spiritually inclined so i was like i was looking up energy healing and looking like up all about all energy centers in the body and how you hold on to you know bad experiences and how they can breed disease and mental illness and so i got really into that i was like i'm going to try that i tried hypnotherapy which was fantastic for kind of unlocking memories And, oh, terrible traumatizing therapy, but so, so powerful, so powerful, you know, and this is over a few months. I was lucky I was doing my master's at the time, so not working full time because I literally had to take like a month to just be numb. Um, But it was just, it was like a turning point. It was just like, okay, I'm going to try something different now because pills aren't the answer. Clearly, there's got to be something in there that's not being dealt with because you can't it can't just be like this forever. I just saw my future just being like eventually being 80 and being on 800 milligrams or something, you know, and just always feeling like I was back at square one. So that was, um, yeah, I tried a lot of things. I went on a spiritual retreat, did all sorts of things and learned a lot about myself and learned basically that the divorce is a common theme in a lot of, um, I guess, a lot of any therapy I did, the divorce would come up. And it was, I really dealt with it. I'd never fully dealt with it. So I really understood it. I got to be angry at my mom. I got to be guilty to my dad and, um, you know, dad and I worked through it a lot and, um, yeah, that was pretty, pretty powerful, but it was probably a two year process of doing all this. And I'm only really actually, as of last week, I'm coming off one medication. So, wow, congratulations. Yeah, That's it's exciting. Amazing. So I'm coming off Lamotrigine, which is a mood stabilizer, um, which I was put on when I was re-diagnosed. In one of, my, one of my many depressive episodes, I was re-diagnosed with bipolar 2 disorder. Okay. Um, so that was in 2015. Um, what was it like getting that diagnosis? Because I guess... Relieving. Relieving. In a word. Okay. Relieving, wow. yes. Because I guess... I think or maybe you're always looking for an answer, though, as well. Sure. Um, I guess, you know, I felt like my moods had always really fluctuated. It had always been the back of my mind as well because my grandma did have bipolar. Bipolar 1, though, which is um, characterized by um, proper psychosis, mm. bipolar 2 is, is, um, has more instances of depression and kind of hypomania. So I definitely saw those patterns in myself and I, you know, after a while when you are diagnosed with a mental illness you and you're taking medication, you really learn to kind of um, understand and identify your moods and things like that. I got pretty good at that. And so I took the test online. The Black Dog Institute has some really good resources like, uh, you know, online bipolar test and things like that. And I took that to my psychiatrist and I was like, I think I have bipolar too. Um, and we talked about it and I was put on a mood stabilizer as well as my antidepressant. So that helped me for another few
0: months. (laughs) And you found it was like actually helpful?
1: Yeah, really helpful um, because that was kind of prompted by uh, another kind of breakdown I had had where I was really, really suicidal just at one of my lowest points. And I had been so up and down. I remember feeling exhausted. Now that I look back, I think it might have been undetected anxiety that is kind of mistaken for mania because you're very hyper and you're very um, on edge and there's a lot of energy going around. And, you know, it's what I'm discussing with my new psychiatrist now. He's a psychodynamic psych- psychotherapist.
0: Um, <laughs> wow, that's a mouthful. Yeah, yeah,
1: it is. Um, so, um, you know, we discuss that now that it's actually all this time I have been anxious and maybe it's not bipolar, but that's the thing he said it's, there's so many blurred lines. What's bipolar 2 to one doctor is anxiety to another or is nothing to another? and So it oh, is a yeah. bit hard, the subjectivity there, obviously. You're not dealing with a physical ailment that might have a really clear-cut diagnosis. Mm. Um, But, yeah, looking back, I, I honestly don't know if it was the right diagnosis. It was right for a while, but then, you know, three years later, a couple of years
0: later, there I was again. You have told me... Previously, that you are involved in a a super amazing charity. Can you talk me through that and let me know what it's about?
1: Yeah. So, um, a not-for-profit organisation is called For Kids' Sake, and they essentially advocate for children who are going through, um, whose parents are going through a divorce, which is quite unusual. Because um, I actually, Dad came across them. Uh, He works in Parliament, and they were actually they're doing a lot to lobby the government for family court reform because it's quite I guess the family court um, you know getting lawyers involved and all sorts of things encourages quite an adversarial process which is what happened with my parents you know they're already very highly emotional and as soon as you get lawyers involved it all goes downhill like you're only going to encourage more and more conflict and then therefore as I spoke about earlier it encourages you know you kind of use children as weapons um, and as bargaining chips and there's a bit of manipulation that can go on, um, you know, because parents are scared that they're going to lose everything and they're already upset. Um, but, yeah, so for kids' sake, came across them. Um, it's good and bad because the fact that there's an actual organisation that exists to, um, I guess, help, help – um, families do divorce better and change the system and, you know, tell all these horrible stories about children being separated from their parents and that kind of thing is really sad because it made me realize, oh my God, this is not just me. This is like an absolute epidemic. Um, You know, divorce is obviously so common. Um, And yeah, just the amount of children who've grown up and had the same kind of realization that I have that Oh no, my dad's not evil or my mum's not evil or, you know, whatever it is. Um but at the same time, um, finding them made me realise that like maybe I have a bit of a higher purpose in life and that I can use my experience kinda of sounds cliche, but no, I can at I can use that to actually help other children or perhaps um prevent this from happening um and you know the voice of lived experience is so powerful like look at what you're doing Maddie with this you know podcast series it's like it's people who've you know lived through mental illness and um you know experiences and by talking about them and getting the awareness out there that's how you sp- spread that awareness and help other people and yeah i totally agree and i think yeah that with with the divorce for instance just hearing other people's stories. And when I met the um, the founder, um, David, he actually, he hasn't seen his son in, I think, eight years or so. Wow. So his wife um, kind of turned the son against him um, and was allowed, the court allowed her to take the son back to Germany where she's from. And so he d- essentially just has to accept he actually pretends that his son is dead it's easier oh than pretending god. that he has a son who's alive and he's put all that I guess trauma into good and has started this organization but yeah so many similarities the amount of people you talk to um, I was
0: gonna say have you met a few people where you are just like oh my god that's my story like I've had exactly the same experience
1: yep. which is as I said it's good and bad yeah because it's like oh my god it's not just me but it's so sad that this is so common. Um, and, yeah, I was recently in Canberra with them, actually, because they um, were uh, spreading the word, had an event with some politicians there, um, and I did a speech there. Did which, you? Yeah. Was, how was that? Oh God, the amount of anxiety meds that I took for that. <laughs> I was going to say oh how many how I many pretty others? much OD'd. <laughs> um, I was, yeah, I was well, like pretty chill actually. Um, no, but it was really like those kind of things are just such a great, like you do it and you feel so accomplished. But yes. that was particularly special because my dad was in the audience because he's a politician. So he was there in the crowd and I got to kind of tell our story and it was really healing for us as well. Um, like, like I said, I have a great relationship with my dad, but these kind of things are really special and, and he's getting to see me like go out and, and make a change and do something about it. Cause he's really passionate about it as well. Um, but yeah, I had politicians coming up to me after like, oh my God, this was my mom or this was me. Um, divorce doesn't discriminate, obviously, no. like a lot of things, mental illness. Um, and yeah, so you can just, it's just crazy to see. How common it is the the similar similarities across
0: the experiences. Mm. I think it's really interesting because I think well my parents are still together, and I think if you haven't experienced your your family breaking up, it's very hard to kind of understand what it's like for someone. Mm. But I think listening to what you've said, it's not so much about the actual divorce; it's what happens after, yeah, and what happens in those years to come. That seems to be the most kind of, you know, important in terms of how that child is actually going to recover.
1: Yeah, absolutely because and that's what this organization really stands for because of course people are going to separate like that's that's normal. It's just how you handle it. As soon as you get lawyers involved and it's just all about conflict and dividing up assets and just treating kids like weapons and and the way the court handles it like um you know just it's very outdated non-scientific subjective methods like watching you interact with your parents and then asking you very leading questions about each parent and there's a lot of bias and so you know there are there there should be at least a step a mediation step in the beginning and at the moment there is mediation offered but if one parent doesn't want to do it then they go straight to court yeah it's certainly all about how you handle it after
0: And do you think that being involved in this charity has kind of given you a place to kind of heal or has it given you an opportunity to heal even more? Definitely. I think,
1: yeah, the more informed you are, it's like before when I was talking about how I just wanted to get to the bottom of my depression and and work out like what's really the root of this and causing it. It's like I need to I need to learn more about myself and understand myself rather than just, you know, suppress it and put a band-aid on it. So I think with with this it's enabled me to learn a lot more, have a lot more conversations, um feel understood, but um yeah, and I think that all helps with healing for sure and doing things like Speeches in Parliament, and you know, it's made me talk talk a lot about a lot more about it. Like I talk about it at work; I bring it up at work and with my parents, and that's all healing because you're just getting it out
0: in the open and you're realizing that things can change. Mm, I think it's amazing when you actually kind of get to that point where you can speak about things. How just like talking about it and verbalizing it can just be so freeing, and it feels like you're just letting go of. I don't know trauma. I guess it's mm. kind of like it's it's such a good way to begin the healing process. Mm. I just find it, yeah. I I can't imagine myself. I can't. I don't think I could have become as well as I am now if I hadn't been given that chance to speak to people. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. feel like connected to people. I think it's such an important tool, which is why I appreciate the fact that you know yourself and other people have come on here because it is it's a it's an opportunity to have a conversation with people who are going through the same experience as you and it's so healing.
1: Absolutely. Like even like, that's why I love it. I bring it up at work or something, which you usually wouldn't talk about, but because you're doing work with a charity, otherwise I'm not going to be like, oh yeah, my parents are divorced and it's so sad. It's caused me so much trauma, (laughs) but I have a reason to, because I was going to Canberra and then, you know, my boss was asking me about it and it just started this whole conversation Mm. about divorce and the problems with it. And, And you're right. Like, a lot of people, a lot of my colleagues don't have divorced parents and they're just like, oh, I just had no idea it was like that. Mm. Like, I just can't even, can't even begin to understand. My boyfriend's the same. His parents are together and he's just like, I just never would have thought that Mm. this is what you went through and that it could be like that. And he's just like, I feel naive just because I've just, this has never been something that I've experienced. And a lot of his
0: um, friends' parents are together as well. So...
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely it's different. Yeah,
0: mm, and people aren't gonna know and aren't gonna understand if we don't talk about it. That's a thing. Like, we can we can feel this way and we can want things to change, but if we're not ready to kind of have those open conversations and let people who are naive to issues know what it's like, mm. it's not going to change. Mm-hmm. So I think you're super brave for doing what you're doing. <laughs> I, really, you. I really mean it. Um, <laughs> thank you for being so candid and articulate today. Thanks.
1: I don't <laughs> know about articulate, but candid. <laughs> super
0: articulate, super candid. Thank you, Emily. Thanks, Maddie. See, what did I tell you guys? What an amazing interview. I learned so much about what it's like to come from a family that has separated. I I think a lot of us whose who's parents are still together might not understand what it's like, and I think it's so good to hear tales and stories like this because we we get a completely different look at what other people's lives are like so good um i really hope you enjoyed that episode guys and if you did there's a lots of ways to let me know and interact with me <laughs> uh the first thing you can do is go to itunes and rate review and subscribe me you can leave a comment, be as specific as you like. I really, really like to hear your feedback. So if you can, if you have a few moments, that would be amazing. Um, you can also reach me at ifyoudontmindpodcast at gmail.com. So if you want to be on the podcast or you got something interesting you'd like to let me know, please, please drop me an email. Uh, you can reach me on Facebook which is just if you don't mind. You just got to type it into the search bar there. And then of course, Instagram is if you don't mind podcast. And I think I have a Twitter now. Yeah, I've got a Twitter. It's if you don't mind P because <laughs> there's nothing else I can use. Someone else already had it, if you don't mind. Oh, bastards. <laughs> uh, and very soon, I will be launching my Patreon. So please, please keep an eye out for that. Uh, Very excited to launch that soon. But guys, as usual, thank you so much for all the support you've been showing me. I really, really do appreciate it. And of course, be kind to yourself, be kind to others. And if you can, listen to someone else's story, because it's amazing what other people's experiences can do for our own development. Take it easy, guys. Bye.